Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. What a, what a beautiful song. Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4, where we left off a couple weeks ago in our journey through the Gospel of John. Specifically, we're in verse 27. We're going to look at verses 27 through 42 and end our look at this beautiful scene, this three-part look at Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman at the well. As you're finding that, let me just say, praise God for Reuben's message last week on 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, just one verse where he just unfolded the beauty of that doctrine of the adoption of God, of all of his children in Christ so wonderfully. If you miss that, I really encourage you to go back to the website and listen to it or watch it. Well, let me pray and then let's, let's dive into this text. Father, we confess that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We confess that all scripture is breathed out by you. It's it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the people of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, we know that you sanctify us in your truth and that your word is truth. And we confess along with the prophet that your word comes down like the rain from heaven and it shall accomplish its purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. And so, Lord, right now, we humbly ask you and plead with you that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and bring about the purposes of God. And we pray this in the name of the Son of God, Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, we are ending this look at Jesus' famous encounter with this woman at the well. And so just to give us a, a bit of a summary that we left off a couple weeks ago, in John chapter, one, verses four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, Jesus has ended this long journey where he has just had this encounter with Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, this, this teacher of teachers, and the transition into the opposite end of the spectrum as he meets this woman who is socially and theologically and religiously on the opposite end of the spectrum of this learned Jew. He meets this woman at this well after a long journey, and he engages her really in this evangelistic discussion, and he, he asks her for water, and she's drawing water out of the well. And remember, we talked about how this woman is there at the middle of the day, which would have been very unusual because she was there when all of the other women of the town would have come either early in the morning or late in the afternoon, evening, when the sun wasn't raging, carrying these big, huge pots of water that would weigh up to 30 or 40 pounds. And so she is understandably out of shame because of her life, because of the fact that she was living with this man who was not her husband and had been married five times before, avoiding the scorn of the people in her community in this divine appointment, meets Jesus in the middle of the day at the well. And Jesus begins this interaction with her, and he takes this 
physical aspect of water and he turns it into this spiritual conversation about spiritual water which ultimately is trust in Jesus and ultimately they have this conversation about worship and Jesus identifies himself as the Christ that she truly needs and we find ourselves now in verses 27 through 42 which is the end of this scene before we get to Jesus healing someone at the end of John chapter 4 And I want us to think about this passage, and we're going to break this down. I think ultimately what's happening here is we're going to see this woman who finally understands who Jesus is, and this unlikely recipient of Jesus' grace becomes this bold witness for Christ to her town, and we see ultimately that the vast majority of her town becomes believers in Jesus. So, so, So here, before we look at the passage... I want us just really, there's not going to be any points in the sense of truths, but really just one overarching theme that I want us to see in this passage, and it is this, is that Jesus uses our witness to accomplish his work. Jesus uses people like us that he has saved, people like this woman. He uses our witness, our telling others about Jesus, our lives, our corporate life together as a church. Jesus uses us, our witness to bring about the work that he came to do. So in this passage, I see three scenes. And just to give you an outline, just so you kind of know where we're going, we're going to, let me put this, this outline of the passage up there for you. First, we're going to look at a bold witness, verses 27 through 30, a bold witness. Then we're going to look at Jesus' work and our work. This is the second scene that we see. Jesus' work, he's going to have this discussion with his disciples about his work and their responsibility. That's verses 31 through 38 or 39, I think it is. And then the final scene, we're going to see this converted village come, and we're going to see the progression of true faith in verses 39 through 42. Well, let's, let's read, let's start reading about this bold witness of this woman as she has encountered Jesus. Verse 27, just then... His disciples came back, and so what has happened is that this woman has seemingly understood truly who Jesus is after this encounter, and the disciples come back from going into the village to get some food, and they see Jesus talking to this woman, and we have to understand first century culture, this would have been a taboo for Jesus to be talking to a woman, first of all, and secondly, to be talking to a Samaritan woman, somebody that was was certainly unclean in the eyes of a religious Jew in the first century. So his disciples come back, and they marveled, verse 27, that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, verse 29, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Remember, Jesus told her about her life. He didn't necessarily tell her everything. So she's exaggerating here a bit, obviously, but speaking truth that Jesus looked into her soul and told her about her history. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him, speaking to the villagers in in her town, which we'll read about at the end. So let's pause there and just consider this woman's bold witness. 
Notice at the beginning of, of this paragraph that the disciples come back and they come upon Jesus and they, they marvel that he's talking to the woman. But, but John intentionally, he, he anticipates what their questions probably would have been if they had vocalized them, but he, he's careful to mention that they didn't actually say anything. So what's going on here? Why does John say, this is probably what they were thinking, but they didn't ask it. I think... Now, I'm just surmising here, this is just speculation, that what we see here in these disciples, John's sort of alluding, and he's one of them, they're thinking this, but they don't verbalize it, is we see a picture of the increasing trust of the disciples. They don't have full understanding of what Jesus is doing right now, but they have seen enough to be able to say, you know what, he's up to something and I trust him. And this, I think, is just a sign of spiritual growth. We don't always understand what's going on, but we trust that God knows what he's doing. And I think we see that in, in the disciples' silence as they see Jesus talking to this woman. And then notice, just before we move on to, to Jesus' work and his conversation with his disciples, Notice that John mentions that she left her water jar and went into town. Now, John does not tell us why. He, he doesn't give us any commentary on, on how we should interpret this. But I think clearly, well, certainly I know, we know that every word that is in the Scriptures is particularly, specifically, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so there is a reason that John leaves this detail here in verse 28 that this woman left her jar. This would have been part of the daily sustenance. This would have been a big deal to come back to town without the water. And oh, by the way, she is sweating her tail off because she's doing it in the middle of the day trying to avoid people early in the morning and late at night when all of the other women would have been there at the well. And so this was a big deal for her to leave her water jar in haste and go tell her town about this man who had peered into her soul. Why does John leave that detail in there? I think John is intending to clearly communicate something to us. It's a picture. We're just getting a picture of this woman and the the beauty of the transformation, the, the new priority of her soul. This doesn't necessarily mean that Every Christian from this time should drop all of their worldly dealings and follow Jesus and just take a a vow to kind of a reckless abandon, although that is certainly a spiritual principle that we can follow. But what it does mean is we see that this woman is a picture, it's a fruit of her true conversion because she is so absorbed with Jesus who has spoke to her soul and revealed himself that everything else just kind of fades away. You know that, that beautiful song that, that, that turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this earth will go, grow strangely dim? I think that can be sung about this woman. It's a picture of a freed heart, a heart freed from shame. Think about this now. She's going back to the people that she is avoiding in the middle of the day and she's going back without her water jar, and she's going back to these people who she's ashamed to be around, boldly saying, come and see this man. That's a transformed heart. This is a woman who has had an encounter with God himself, and she's a bold witness. 
And now let's look at verses 31 through 38, Jesus' work and our work. The second scene here where Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples about their work and his work, really about evangelism, which I think is ultimately what this passage is about. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So again, just like he did with the woman, notice he's taking a tangible physical thing. He used water with her, and now he's using food with his disciples, and he's pivoting on this tangible physical item to bring about a spiritual truth. So he says, I have food to eat which you do not know about. And so they're kind of thinking, well, you got, you got like a sandwich in your back pocket? What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? But no, he's, he's making it a spiritual point. So the disciples said to one, one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food, don't miss this sentence, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus is transitioning from the physical point, object of food, to the spiritual work of obeying the Father's will. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you, he's speaking to the disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, so what is Jesus saying here? In this paragraph, verses 31 through 38, what's he getting at? Well, first, what does Jesus mean by it's, it's his food is to do the will of him, clearly meaning the Father who has sent me and to accomplish the Father's work. What is Jesus talking about there? Well, clearly, Jesus is talking about the work of redemption that the Father has sent the Son for. That's why Jesus came, not merely to bring about a new ethic or or a new lifestyle, but to reconcile, to redeem, to save his people from their sins. This is the storyline of the Bible all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, our first parents, right after sin entered in. And the Bible tells us that when sin entered into humanity, death enters in and we are We are, in a sense, excommunicated. We're separated from God. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. And God speaks to Adam and Eve. And he speaks to the serpent. And he says that there's coming a seed from this woman who will bruise the serpent's head. And we actually read later on in the New Testament in Romans that this seed, who is Christ, will crush the serpent's head. And so there's this anticipation that this work of redemption, this work of reconciliation will happen. Centuries later in Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah gives us a a clearer picture of this work that the servant, the son, has come to do. And he's speaking prophetically now, hundreds of years before Jesus is born and lives a life and dies on the cross. This is what Isaiah the prophet says about this work, this food that Jesus has come to do, the will of God. 
He says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he, speaking prophetically about Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Primarily when he's talking to his disciples, that the will of God, his food, his sustenance, his mission, his reason for the incarnation is to come and to accomplish the will of God. And what is the will of God? The redemption, the reconciliation, the saving of those who will trust in the Son. That's what Jesus has come to do. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's why we gather. This is not a social club. This is not an ethic. This is not a morality tale. This is the one grand glorious news of how a holy God reconciles people to himself through his son, through his life, death, and resurrection. That's the story of everything. And everything that is good and true, everything that matters is a spoke that comes off of that one hub of the wheel of the gospel. That's why you exist. That's why this church exists. That's why you're alive. To know that and to make others know that. And Jesus has said, that's what I have come to do. It's the good news of the gospel. It applies to everything. This is how the Apostle Paul summarizes it. One of the wonderful, most beautiful, clearest, succinctest summaries of the gospel, of this work of Jesus, this work of God through Jesus, the Father through the Son, Applied by the Spirit as he opens up our heart to believe this. This is how Paul summarizes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For our sake, he, meaning the Father, made him, meaning the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that man, that that sentence right there is like a little Bible. In miniature form. It's a kind of summary of the whole message of the gospel. Not exhaustive, but certainly a wonderful summary of the gospel. Let's let's look at it very carefully. For our sake, for the saving of his people, God the Father sent Jesus in the fullness of time. That's what Galatians 4, verse 4 says. In the fullness of time, just under God's good and gracious, wise providence, he sent Jesus. Galatians 4 4. In fact, tonight, In our Galatians Bible study, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to look at at God in His timing. He sends the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been in the co-eternal, co-glorious, triune God. He sent Jesus, who is perfect in every way. Now, this is a great mystery. You say there are some things that are hard to understand. Well, try and understand this, that God Himself became a man and stayed and always has been God, but is still fully man and can identify with that, with us. How is that possible? I don't know. But we see it in the Bible, and it's true. And Jesus becomes a man, and he, in his perfect, obedient life, lays down his perfection on the cross to bear the wrath of God for us. And so on the cross, Jesus isn't paying back the devil. 
He is satisfying the holiness of God. Your biggest problem is not your sin. It's not the enemy. It's not the devil. It's not the government. It's not the president. It's not a vaccine. It's not a virus. It's the holiness of God. And Jesus, God himself in the flesh, the only one that can actually satisfy and absorb and remove and atone for our sin, which is brought on the holy wrath of God, lays down his life on the cross. God pours out his wrath on the Son, who is completely undeserving of it, but sacrificed himself in our place, and he extinguishes it, he removes it, he drinks it dry, and therefore there is no condemnation for those who trust in him who are in Christ Jesus. And he rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And now he commands all people to repent and believe, to drink, as he talked to this woman at the beginning of the chapter, to drink of this living water, the only water that will truly satisfy. Not trusting in yourself, not worshiping your own desires and your own flesh, but trusting in Jesus for your reconciliation with the holy God and being satisfied in him alone. That's the work of the Son for the Father. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has come to do. And everything, everything in life, whether it's your marriage or your money management or your anger management or your vocation or your parenting or your singleness or your sexuality, everything flows from that and is meant to be an expression of the lordship of Christ in your life. And that's the work of Jesus. That's what he's come to do. And here's, this is stunning. He's now telling the disciples something that is amazing, and he's saying it not to the disciples, but also to us. He's saying, this is my work, and you are joining with me in my work, not of actually accomplishing salvation, only Jesus can do that, but we join, he's inviting the disciples to join in the harvest in as much as they tell other people about Jesus. And that's what this woman has done. So he is using this outcast, sinful Samaritan woman who is a bold evangelist and a kind of example that he is using to his Jewish disciples. Be like her. She's reaping. She's, she's bringing in the harvest. Look at her. She's going. She's telling people about me. Do the same. Essentially what he's saying to his disciples is don't, don't, don't wait, man. Don't. Don't say in four months it'll be ready. Don't think you need to know everything there is to know. It's here. The harvest is here. Jesus is telling his disciples that he's reaping, so get to reaping too. He sent them to reap. And when he says that others have, have been involved in this and, and now you're joining in their labor, I think he's referencing, I think he's referencing really the history of redemption, the Old Testament saints. They have been used by God, even though Jesus had not yet come to earth in a sense they're trusting in the promises of God they're pointing like Isaiah the prophet is pointing in as much as he knew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is writing about a suffering servant that he may not have fully understood all that was involved in it who knows we don't know the answer to that but he is trusting he's pointing people he's pointing people to Jesus 
And so in a sense, the prophet Isaiah's ministry in an Old Testament sense is the same ministry of this Samaritan woman. Come and see. Go, go. Trust in the one. Trust in him. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what this woman is saying. And that's the role of every Christian is to join Jesus in this work and say, along with this woman, come and see a man who alone can take away our sin. Friends, what, what, a, what a privilege we have. Jesus came, and this is our main point. Remember the main point that Jesus uses our witness to accomplish his work. It's not that he needs us to in any way add to the work on the cross or add to atonement. We don't offer our good. No, no, none of that. But Jesus the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has arranged the unfolding plan of redemption in a way, and this is stunning, that the Holy God who has made everything out of nothing and can do whatever He wants has decided in His kindness for His glory and our joy to include reconciled sinners as part of the means by which He brings other reconciled sinners to faith in Him. That's stunning. It's like a master carpenter who has no need of any assistance in his workshop, but yet in his love invites his son to hand him a hammer and chisel the wood with him. Not because he needs the efforts of his son, but because he delights in bringing glory to himself and joy to his son by inviting him into the process of his work. And we see that this is a great privilege. Jesus is inviting his disciples and he's inviting us. Listen to 2 Corinthians. We just read uh, from verse 21, chapter 5. But let me read a few verses before that. This is a beautiful. This is a wonderful passage. Now, when I say that, I always feel strange. The whole Bible is wonderful. You know I believe that, right? Like, it's all wonderful. Well, come on now. Some, there's some parts of it that just kind of, you know what I mean? This is one of them. Verse 17, and by the way, Reuben read this, verse 17, but I'm going to read a little bit further. He read this last week and just like, oh, I could just feel it. Yes. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm tempted to stop and take a rabbit trail and just preach a little mini-sermon and the sermon on that. Do you realize the implications of this verse? We still may be struggling with sin. We still may have the old man of the zombie, the former us following us around. But the truest thing about you, if you're in Christ, is that you have been made new. You have a new heart, new desires, and he will bring you all the way home. He will not give up on any of his saints. The truest thing about you, the unchangeable thing about you if you're a Christian, is that you're a new creation. And nothing can thwart, nothing can stop God's purposes in your life. Nothing can destroy the creation of God. He has started a good work in you, and he will finish it. He'll bring you all the way home. But I don't, I don't have time. Mini sermon over. Back to the main sermon. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then listen to this. Here's, here's why I'm reading this verse to support our, our passage in John, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
So he's using reconciled sinners to be part of his future and present reconciliation of other sinners. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting, entrusting to us, binding, fastening himself to us, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So do you realize there's so many implications on, on, of verse 20? You're like an ambassador. You're, you're being sent by the kingdom of God to live in this world. Listen, you're not primarily American or Ugandan or Haitian or Mexican or Canadian or Californian. I don't care what your nationality is. That was a joke, by the way, about California. I'm from there. Okay. Anyway, all right. Your citizenship is in heaven. And what verse 20 is saying is that God, in his new creation of you through salvation, taking your dead heart, giving you a new heart, making you alive so that you can trust in Jesus, you have been, Colossians 1, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. And he's made you an ambassador, a representative to show the nations, the peoples of this dark kingdom of Satan who God is so that through your, our collective witness, he might bring more people into our kingdom. What could be better than that? This is the great mission of the Christian and the church. But what does this look like for us before we move on to this last little part here? What does that look like for us? We're tempted, I think, most of us, because we are a uh, intensely and often sinfully individualistic culture, we are tempted to think of evangelism as a kind of John Wayne, charge the hill, individual effort. And because of that, I think we tend to get discouraged because we think then that inevitably this is just something for only a few people that have a particular gift or are particularly sharp or are particularly good or winsome or theologically minded or good in conversation or whatever. And although I do not want to discount the fact that many people have particular gifts or maybe are really good at one-on-one -on -one defense of the gospel and evangelism, that's wonderful and that's true. And, and I also don't want to discount the fact that we should all strive to get better at that on, on whatever level we can. I think the emphasis of the New Testament is that the Christian life is a communal life. It's a life meant to be lived in the context of a local church body. And certainly, evangelism is part of that. We are called together. This is a collective responsibility. And the church is a body. And it functions as a body. Let me give you a verse that has long captured my heart. After we planted this church 16 years ago, it's a it's just one of those verses that just sort of jumped off the page to me years ago. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. And Paul is speaking to this young pastor, Timothy, about life in the local church. And listen to how he describes what the church should be about. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
He's telling Timothy why he's writing this letter. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he's writing to him instructions about the order of church, who should be in leadership, and how we should take care of each other, and all those things that are just wonderful foundational truths about how we should order ourselves as a church. And he calls it the household of God. And listen to how he describes it, the second half of the sentence there. He says, which is the church of the living God, listen to this now, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we exist to be a pillar, something that's holding something up. We exist to point people to the truth, the gospel, not to ourselves. We don't exist primarily to meet our needs even. Our needs are met as we glorify God together. We, we exist to lift up Him, to find our joy in bringing glory to God, to being used as means by which He would bring other people to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Remember back in John chapter 1, where John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we looked at that reference to the serpent in the Old Testament and Numbers being lifted up. And when people would look at the serpent, they would live. And God has this amazing scene in Numbers where he actually sends these poisonous snakes to bite the disobedient people of Israel and cause them to die. And then he commands Moses to actually make a bronze replica of one of these serpents, the very thing that has brought them death and judgment, and to lift it up and say, look at the serpent and live. And Jesus actually compares himself in his resurrection, in his, in his work on the cross to be lifted up, that, that, that when we look at the judgment that should be ours on the Son of God. He's comparing the cross being lifted up to the serpent being lifted up in the Old Testament, and they bring healing. And so our role as a church is to lift up Jesus, and we are to do this as a household, as a family, together, as a people who link arms together and see that we have not an individual, but a corporate. And what I mean by corporate is not IBM or, or Xerox or Coca-Cola. Corporate meaning body. We have a corporate responsibility to do this together. That's the point of this text. Jesus uses us collectively as a body to be witnesses to accomplish his work. So before we move on and land this plane, what, is, what does that look like? Well, the elders have been, what does it look like for us as a local church that we would together be used collectively as a witness to draw our town to Jesus just as this woman has done? The elders have been in our, our meetings, we've been reading this book together, a short little book called Corporate Worship which is talking about what should happen when the church gathers together and how our, our gatherings should be first a, a ministry to the Lord and to one another and to the world. 
And all of it is part of this lifting up God so that through our church, which doesn't exist for itself or for ourselves, but for God and his glory and his plan, which is redemption, that he would use our collective life together to be a kind of group evangelism effort to be an aroma to Christ, to our city, and to the nations. That's what this book is ultimately about, and that's what this passage is ultimately about, and that's what we are ultimately about as a church. Just even think about the word service, church service. Think about that word carefully. We might instinctively think that that word service is that I come to be served, but it's actually the inverse is true, that this word has its origins in our language, and the reason old Christians in centuries past chose this word to describe what Christians do when they gather together is because it has the meaning of us coming to serve the Lord and one another. And so if you are a believer and you're part of the church, that's your primary posture to come to serve the Lord and to serve one another. So just a few thoughts very quickly on what this looks like. Friends, this means that if you, how can you be a kind of, a kind of part of the corporate evangelism, the corporate witness of the church when we gather? Come and come with your head on a swivel. Endeavor, strive to show up a little early. Get to bed early on Saturday night. Don't waste your, 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 your Saturday evening on, on garbage on TV. Prepare to serve the Lord. To come together and to serve the Lord. Come a little early. And man, I know. I remember when our kids were young. That was really, really hard. Well, at least it was hard for Jennifer. I would always come here early. I'm a terrible dad. But I had to get ready for other stuff here on Sunday. But I understand it can be a challenge with, with young children. But we come. We have our head on a swivel looking. If you're a member of this church, you're part of this corporate evangelism event called Sunday morning where we are coming to be used by God. We come and we... Don't discount. Don't discount how God can use us when we are intent, when we come ready to lean forward, to open up our Bibles and to sing loudly and robustly, even if we don't particularly like the song or even the style or whatever it is. We're not there to have our preferences be met But we are here recognizing that in our context and in our culture and church in America, on any given Sunday, there will be people in this room who are not yet believers and who, whether they realize it or not, are tuned in to the posture of people that they know are believers. And by the way the church gathers, by their ethos, by their posture, by their mood, by their expectation, by the countenance on their faces, by their willingness to sing loudly and bring honor to God and open up their Bibles and lean forward into the Word of God, something beautiful happens. When God's people do that in the rag 
tag distraction of their week when they come and they decide, I'm going to serve the Lord and I'm going to come and I'm going to not focus on myself and I'm going to not make it about my preference and I'm going to have my head on a swivel and I'm going to see who I can bless and I'm going to sing to God and I'm going to open my Bible and I'm going to be others focused and God oriented. Friends, something beautiful happens. The Spirit of God just seems to move in that type of place and He does beautiful, indescribable, unpredictable things. And what happens is that God uses that corporate posture and witness of a people to be part of the means, even in a kind of just atmosphere where people are more inclined to say, you know what, these people really believe this. They believe in this man that they are singing about, praying about, and reading about. They believe it, maybe I should too. Something happens. Something happens. I'm not trying to be ambiguous or overly spiritual here. I'm just saying, I am saying that something happens when a congregation gets this and they lean into it and they just have a joy despite the situations that may be facing and they come and they're ready and it's not about them, it's about serving God and others and something happens. The Spirit just moves mightily in contexts like that. He's not bound by that, but he is delighted to to move in situations like that. Now may I just offer this before we move on to the end. And this is just a pastoral word. Not not of scolding, but of exhortation. It seems to me the past year or so since this pandemic, there's been a kind of malaise over us corporately as a church. Maybe it's concern for all sorts of things. We've endured a, a difficult season culturally with a very intense political debate, with ethnic distrust at the highest level since I've been alive, and with all sorts of opinions about masks and vaccines and what the CDC says about this and that. And on various levels, those are legitimate things for us to think about. I'm not saying that Christians should not be involved in having those discussions with one another, even within the context of the local church. But I am saying that I think that we have been vulnerable and at times have succumbed to a spiritual tactic of the enemy to make us more consumed and absorbed about those things than we are about when we gather to serve the Lord. And it's produced a kind of doldrum, a kind of malaise, a kind of suspicion, a kind of lack of joy, a kind of lack of otherliness in us as a church. And I put myself in there with you that I think has hindered our witness and has detracted from our ability as a church to be on mission. And in as much as I've been part of that, and in as much as I may be speaking to you if you've been part of that, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. 
We will stand before the Lord someday. We will stand before the Lord someday. And he will not ask us who, what we thought about what the CDC says or what we thought about this latest cultural dumpster fire. Those things have their relative temporal importance. And on some level, they all are spokes off of what it means to be a Christian in this world. I get that a thousand times. I get that. But what I am saying is that let it not dupe us into being taken off mission. We come to serve the Lord and lift up Jesus because we are collectively a pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's what the world needs to see. Well, let's land this plane. Verses 39 through 42, the progression of true faith. Quickly. Many Samaritans. So this woman has ran onto her town, leaving her water jar behind. Jesus has this teaching moment with his disciples. Now we pick back up with this woman in her town. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. Listen to verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Praise God. So let's, let's step back out here and just consider the scene. Let's take in what has happened as a result of this divine appointment that Jesus has had with this woman at the well. A shameful woman who had no business being an evangelist is turned into an unashamed reaper of the harvest of God. Meanwhile, Nicodemus, the religious teacher of the Jews, is still over in the corner of chapter 3, scratching his head. And a town of Samaritans, suspicious of Jews, being scorned in this centuries-long fight with Jews, come and meet Jesus and believe in him. They didn't stop at what she says, but they went themselves and they believed, not because their daddy was a deacon or their mama played the piano. They believed because they met Jesus for themselves. You must know him personally. Nobody, God has no grandchildren. We're all first generation. You must know him personally. And the good news of the gospel is that God offers you, dear one life, you, do you know him? I'm not asking you what church you grow up in. I'm not asking you whether or not your daddy was a preacher. I'm not asking you if your mama taught a Bible study. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? That's the most important thing in the world right now. Do you know him? Do you know him? And Jesus has come to give you living water. And he's come to satisfy God's wrath for you if you will believe his word. And if you already believe his word, he's inviting you to make your life collectively with other people in a local church, 
about that? <laughs> What's better? What's better? What's better? Jesus uses our witness to accomplish his work. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do with your word and my feeble words added to them. May the wind of the Spirit blow mightily in this place to bring new life to dead hearts and to blow away the dust on the already made alive hearts for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.